Please have a seat and welcome, whether you are here with us uh, in person or you're watching online. Now, back in uh, last spring, I believe it was, uh, I led a study through a book called The Problem of God uh, by Mark Clark. And in that uh, that book, he he talks about the first time he heard about this idea of hell. Uh, Mark did not grow up in a Christian home, but his parents uh, were just like, we want you out of our hair, so they sent him to a Christian camp, uh, a summer camp, for a week. And so he's, he's out there, um, he's having fun, he says, like, at the beginning of the week, the, the speaker's messages, they were, they were encouraging. It was a, talking about how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. But he said as the week went on, the, the messages got more and more serious. And finally, they got to Friday night. And he, he refers to this as the, the turn or burn night. And you're going to see why here in a second. Because he, he says they, they're at the fire pit the last night. They sing some songs before they're going to go to bed. But the speaker, he t- gets up and he takes a thing of gasoline. And he, he pours it on the fire and the flames shoot up. And he asks... Do you want that to be you? And all the kids are like, no. Um, and he's like, then believe in Jesus. And they're like, okay. Um, and so they, they get back to the cabin that night. And he, he talks about the conversation they have as nine-year-old boys. They're, they're like, man, I, I don't want to go to hell. Do you want to go to hell? No, I don't want to go to hell either. Well, I'm sure glad I did what the speaker told me to do. Um, it gets me out of it. Now, like, who, who wants to go to hell? Nobody. Um, who's going to get out of it given the opportunity? Pretty much every person. But, but here's the thing. Christians will often present hell um, to non-Christians with this idea that fear is going to motivate them to give their life to Jesus. It's going to stimulate this long-lasting faith in Christ. And so it's kind of this idea. Like, we're going to scare them so much with hell that, you know what, they're, they're just not going to be able to help it, and they'll want to become a Christian. Now, maybe you went to um, a summer camp like that. Maybe you grew up in a church, and it was kind of a lot of those type messages. But here's the thing. Like, we know that fear isn't a long-term motivator. Um, people get over fear. Fear doesn't produce disciples of Jesus. Fear, um, it's, it's not going to translate into this long-lasting faithfulness or life of discipleship to Christ. Now, here's, here's a question I want you to ask yourself if you are a believer, if you, if you call yourself a Christian. I want you to ask this. What is it that motivates my Christian walk? What is it the thing that drives my, my life of discipleship forward? And so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, and the Apostle Paul, he's going to talk about what it is that drives him, that motivates him, that compels him. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective. Yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, 
and he has committed, committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so notice what Paul is saying in that. It's not fear, it's not guilt, it's not shame that motivates his faithfulness, his life of discipleship. It's, it's this, the love of Christ. That's what drives him forward. It's knowing Christ's love for him and Christ's love for others. Now, in verse 21, we kind of, we get a glimpse of Paul's idea of the love of Christ. And he, he puts it this way. He made the one, so God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now Martin Luther, he's the, the, the great German uh, reformer. He kind of kick-started the Protestant Reformation. And, and he said this about this verse, or he referred to this idea as the great exchange. And so he, here's the great exchange. It's this, that um, on the cross, Jesus took our sinful unrighteousness and he exchanged it for his sinless righteousness. So Jesus Christ, the only sinless person, took our sin upon himself. He endured the punishment we deserved for sin, namely uh, death and death in all senses of the word and separation from God. And Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place for our sake, for our benefit. Now think of it this way. The gospel could be thought of this way, that you are, you are found guilty or you are accused of, of a capital crime in a kingdom. And, and you stand trial before the king, before the judge, and it, it is undoubtedly clear that you are guilty. You've committed treason, you've committed mutiny, you have tried to usurp the king's throne and, and be in charge of everything. And so this is a capital crime, and so there is a capital punishment for it. And so it means your death. But as you're being led away to the, the execution, the king says, wait. And he brings out his only son, and he says, he'll go instead. And his son goes off and is executed in your place. And then the king says to you, the debt has been paid. You are free to go. And so this is, this is the idea of the gospel. This is, this is it, that there has been a great exchange, that Jesus makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God because he took our place. We receive his righteousness. We are forgiven and free. And so this whole idea of, of reconciliation is that you are restored to a right relationship with God. That when God looks at you, he sees you as justified. He sees you in the way that he sees his own son with the same love, with the same purity, with the same um, righteousness and holiness. Now verse 19, it says, because of this, God no longer counts our sins against us. Since our crimes have been paid for, we are considered new. We, we have new life. Our old life has ended. And so God is king as well because he is the creator of it all, but he has the power to be king because his son doesn't stay in the grave. He, he resurrects Jesus three days later, demonstrating his power over even death. And that promise is given to every person who has faith in Christ, that they too will, will rise again. We sang about that, and that we will be free from any future punishment for sin and the power of sin in our lives. Now, I, I want to talk about something here really quick. I want to make sure we're clear on it. Verse 14, it, it says um, that Christ died for all. Now, some people hear that 
and they, they go, okay, it means he died for absolutely everyone. And they get this idea called universalism. And universalism is this idea that everybody is going to be saved regardless of their confession of faith. And so think of it this way. Universalism says this, that after this life is over for everyone, God is going to throw a great party in heaven. It's going to be awesome. And everyone is going to be there regardless of whether or not they accepted the invite, regardless of whether or not they want to be there, everybody's going to be in heaven because Christ died for all. Now, there's problems with that because it would actually be unloving for God to make people to go to a place that they don't want to go to, but that's for another time. But what we have to understand is that that's not what Paul is talking about. Like universalism, you can't square that with the rest of the New Testament. And so what Paul is saying here is essentially this. Jesus died so that everyone could have the choice to respond to Christ's death for them and benefit from his death. And so if we we choose to accept Christ's work on our behalf, we get to stand before God as sinless, as righteous, that, that he sees us with the righteousness of Christ. We have this legal status of being holy. Now, when somebody accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, what we do is we take their confession of faith. And, and a confession of faith, it usually takes place at the time of their baptism. And so we'll have somebody up here and we'll ask them these questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And they'll say yes. And then we ask them, do you accept him as your Lord and Savior? To which they say yes. I've never had somebody say no yet. That would be super awkward to be like, okay, no, okay, go back to your seat. I don't know what we do now. Um, but people say, say yes. And so with that, upon the confession of their faith, we will baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and in that, that is kind of the beginning of their life of discipleship in Christ. Now, I don't know if you've ever played the board game Monopoly. I'm going somewhere with this. Um, but in that, there is a square called the jail. And you get sent to jail if you land on the, the, the token or the square that says, go directly to jail, don't pass go, don't collect 200 bucks. Uh, or if you pick up a chance or community chess card that says, go directly to jail. Or if you th- uh, roll doubles three times in a row. Now, it's not really good to be in jail um, because you can't buy properties. And you need to buy properties in order to win the game of Monopoly. So you don't want to be there. Now, there is two cards in the game. They're called get out of jail free cards and you'll find them in the uh, chance deck and the community chess deck. And so all you have to do is like if you if you end up getting sent to jail, if you have one of those cards, you just go, no, I don't have to because I have a get out of jail free card. You present it, you are free to go. And so instead of going necessarily for a, a scare tactic, sometimes churches in this effort to make Jesus more appealing or palatable will treat Jesus almost as if he's the equivalent simply of this get-out-of-hell-free card. And so um, if you you confess Christ and you get to to be saved, and it's it's all good, just show your baptismal certificate on the way in, it's going to be great. You you get into heaven. Now, I need you to hear me clearly on this because there's truth. It it, it is our, our faith in Christ that saves us. It's nothing else that we do. But there's a danger in presenting Christ simply as this, simply as Savior. Because like, when we think of Christ simply as Savior, it has implications on our lives. Like, there are plenty of people in churches that go, Jesus is simply Savior. And how do you know if you're going like, Jesus is simply Savior? Well, you confess faith in him, 
and then you go back to living your life as if nothing really has changed. That, 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 that confession only has implications for the next life. And so, Scripture, though, it, it would say everything has changed. Like, you were dead. You were dead. And you are now alive. You are a new creation that God's Spirit, He takes up residency in, in you. That, that, that Christ, or God's Spirit lives inside of you, that he empowers you, he gives you gifts for ministry, that, that every time somebody confesses Christ as Lord and Savior, it's not just a number on a page, it's saying that, that eternity, that, that the course of forever has been changed. Christ would say that heaven throws a party every time a lost child comes home. And so something major has changed. Now, verse 15, it says, Christ died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died and was raised for them. And so there are two very important words in in that verse. And it's so that. Like those, those words are worth underlining if you have a Bible. And it's this, because here's the reason. Here's the purpose for Christ's death for you. Yes, it was so that you could have eternal life, that your sins could be forgiven. But Paul is saying there's more to it than just the next life. Christ died so that you would not continue to live just for yourself, but for him. And so Christ died so that you would live for him. And verse 15, that kind of flies in the face of what we're told by our culture. Like we're told, you know what, follow your dreams, do what you want. Don't let anyone hold you back. You are the captain of your ship. Do not let anyone else take the wheel. But when we confess Jesus is Lord, we have to understand, saying that Jesus is Lord, it's not just a title of respect. It's not just a title of reverence. It's, it's a title of ownership. And it's not ownership in this big general sense that he is he is the owner of all creation. No, it's, it's saying like, no, you are the owner. You are the master of my life. It is one of authority. We're saying, when we confess Christ as Lord, we're saying you have control over my life. And so Jesus, like, he emphasizes the need to take that title Lord very seriously in Matthew chapter 7, 21. And th- this is one of those verses that, that can be a little bit terrifying if you are a Christian. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so, like, what we have to think about is, like, the king's son has taken our place. Why would we ever go back to living our lives for ourselves? You you would live a life of gratitude. And so, if we are in Christ, our lives no longer belong to us. Jesus died so that we could do the will of our Father in heaven. And so here's the thing. We might go, oh man, that, that, that's like kind of bad. I don't get to do what I want to do. But it's actually freeing. Because you no longer have to try and define yourself and find your purpose in life and try and make something of yourself because God gives it to you in this. And so as Savior, he saves. And as Lord, he leads. And so What Paul's kind of getting at is this. The obedience of Christ on the cross has its counterpart in our obedience to God on earth. 
So our lives belong to Christ. And that means that his word, what he says, is first and foremost in our lives. And, and again, we could find this idea kind of revolting and go, man, I don't like that. I, I still want to maintain control. But if, if we read scripture and if, if, we like, if we claim to believe what we say we believe, we have to say, no, it was when I was at the controls that I got into the sinful mess I found myself in. It was when I was Lord that God had to step in and come to my rescue. Why would I want to go back to calling the shots? It, it doesn't end pretty when I do that. And so Christianity, it's not simply about us getting ready for eternal life, for the next life. We don't simply confess, get baptized, and then go back to doing our own thing until we die or Jesus returns, whatever comes first. Like verse 17, Paul says that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And so new creation implies that there's going to be a new way of living our lives. Now C.S. Lewis he puts it this way, for God is not merely mending, not simply restoring a status quo. Redeemed humanity is to be something more glorious than unfallen humanity. And so God has big plans for those who are in Christ. Like somewhere along the way, we reduced Christianity to this. Show up for an hour on Sunday. Obey a few rules. You're a Christian. But here's the thing, when, when we say Christ is Lord, we're saying no, you own all 168 hours of my week. You call the shots. You've staked that claim. And so Christ's call is one of privilege and purpose. We're, we're privileged in that Christ died for us, but there's purpose in what he expects of us. Jesus died for humanity, and so humanity should live for Christ. Now, I, I don't know if you see what Paul is saying in verses 14 through 21. He's kind of getting at this. You are God's plan. You are God's plan. And here's, here's God's purpose. Here's God's plan for your life. Here is the secret that, that everybody wants to go. Like, what does God want me to do with my life? Here it is, verse 18. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And so here is what Paul is getting at. You have been reconciled by Christ to help reconcile others. You have been saved so that you can help save others. You've been served so that you can help serve others. You want to live for Christ, you do it by living for others. And so if you have been saved, God's kind of going, it's just only natural that you're going to have an interest in helping to save others. Some people kind of explain it this way. It's like, it's the beggar who finds bread, who finds more bread and food than he'll ever need for a lifetime. Wouldn't that beggar go tell other beggars where they can find that food and everything they need and everything they hunger for? This is what the gospel is about. And so God, he, he doesn't just save you and say, okay, sit on the sidelines and watch as I go save humanity. No, he, he invites you into this work. He's given you the work of ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. And, and this, this is not a burden. This is a privilege. Like, think of, think of what is the most precious thing to you in your life? Like, maybe for some of you, it's a car. Um, you, you dreamed about this car, you saved and worked for this car, and you have it now, and it's like, that's your baby. Or maybe it's a, a family heirloom. Uh, maybe it's a piece of jewelry or a Christmas ornament that's kind of been passed down through the generations. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's a brand new baby. 
Maybe it's your cat or something. I don't know. But what is most precious to you? Now, every time you let somebody else drive that car, every time you let somebody else uh, wear that piece of jewelry, hang that ornament, take care of your child, hold your newborn, you, you are demonstrating that you trust them with something that is very precious to you. You are demonstrating that you believe they are capable of caring for something that you care about because you have put that responsibility into their hands. And so here's my point. When God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, he was giving us something that was very precious to him. It's it's not a burden. This is something that's very precious to him because the ministry of reconciliation is about bringing people that God loves back home, bringing them into relationship with him. And so this is why Paul writes in verse 16, from now on then we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Now we're, we're good at the worldly perspective. Like we, we tend to look at people and we see race or we see sex or we see um, income level, occupation, health, political affiliations. Like we, we, we are good at those external distinctions to kind of size up a person, even the clothes they wear, the car they drive. But Paul's going, you know what? That's not what we look at anymore because none of those things matter in the end. Like none of those things carry any weight when you stand before God as judge. And and here's the thing, like we, we know that when we look at the external distinctions, when we judge a person by how they look, we tend to get it wrong. Like you've seen somebody driving a car or wearing certain clothes and you've had an idea in your mind, this is the type of person they are. But then you kind of meet them and you're like, okay, I got that way off. Or how many times have you woken up and you see in the news or on your social media that a celebrity, an actor, a musician, maybe it's a friend, a family member, has attempted to end their lives or, or has actually been successful with it. And, and you're baffled by it because you're going, man, they had everything. They couldn't really want anything else. I I thought their life was perfect. Like, I I had no idea. But inwardly, they were hurting. They were hopeless. They were full of shame. And here's the thing. Like, outward appearances can be deceiving. And so we have to understand what Paul's saying. In verse 14, he says, Christ died for all. It implies that there's a universal need. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 it would say that, that all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And if we think about it, like whether or not you're a Christian, you, you have things that you regret doing. You, you go, man, I, I wish I could get forgiveness for that. Or maybe there's, there's just something you're going, I feel disconnected from other people relationally, regardless of what I do. Or you feel that there's something more out there, but you can't really pinpoint what it is, but you feel disconnected from that. Or maybe you're just going, man, I, I think there must be something better than this world. I hope, I desire that there's something better than this world. And what Paul is saying is that Christ meets all of those. He offers forgiveness and freedom from shame. He offers reconciliation, restored purpose, And he offers hope. And so we have to understand that when Christ died for every person, he put a high premium on every person's life. Like he's saying that every person is worthy of being loved. Every person is worthy of being saved. Every person is worthy of being served. And so we see people in light of the cross. We we don't see people and go, man, they are beyond hope. But every person, we look at them and go, no, God is relentlessly pursuing them in his love and in his grace. 
And so if you read the Gospels, you're going to see that Jesus was an expert in the ministry of reconciliation. Like he, he reaches out to the angry, the greedy, the lonely, the afraid, the stigmatized. He speaks in a way that, that um, touches people's hearts and ministers to their feelings. And so what Paul's getting at is we need to start seeing people the way that Christ saw them. And so you've got some people that you don't think too highly of in your life. Like you've got an angry neighbor. You've got an annoying coworker. Maybe you have a a rebellious child. We have to understand that, that God loves that angry coworker, that Christ loves that annoying uh, neighbor, that he, he loves your rebellious child. He loves the homeless, the helpless, the hurting, the hopeless. He loves you, even when you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, man, I don't think I'm that lovable. He's got that love for you. And so this is the message that we proclaim, that anyone in Jesus Christ gets a fresh start. They are created new. And because he died, every person has value, has potential, they have possibility. Now to get this idea across, Paul says in verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. And so at the time that Paul writes this, the the ambassador is the emperor's stand-in. An ambassador was the presence of the emperor to the people um, and and he shared the the emperor's message. And so when an ambassador spoke, he was the voice of the king or the nation to the people, the uh, nation that he was sent uh, to. And so an ambassador could not be independent. He could not speak in his own name. He could not act in his own manner or communicate his own ideas because he was the representative of the nation. And so the honor of a nation, the honor of the king was kind of in the ambassador's hands. Their, their nation and their king were, were thought of based off of what the ambassador did. And so like an ambassador's words were listened to, their actions were watched, and the people would go, okay, this is the way that people of such and such a nation think and act. Now, for some of you, if you've never been to PEI, Pastor Greg is kind of the unofficial ambassador of PEI for you. Like, you're just going, okay, Islanders, this is the way they think, they speak, and they act. They must all have grown up on farms, they all went to one-room schoolhouses, and they all love golf. Now, that's not true of every Islander, but because he's kind of become this unofficial ambassador through his stories of PEI, this is probably what you think. Now, Paul's point is this, that every Christian is an ambassador of the kingdom of God, that every disciple is a representative of their king, Jesus. Now, Brennan Manning, he says this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And so he, here's, here's what Paul's getting at. Here's what Brennan Manning's getting at, is that you cannot separate your confession from your lifestyle. And again, we, we've boiled Christianity down to attend some things, obey a few rules, and you're living a pretty good Christian life. But if you, if you look at the New Testament, you see, that's not what it's about. It, it was about witnessing. It was about being an ambassador. It was about your lifestyle. Like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that, and so here's your purpose, here is your privilege, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so if you are a Christian, I want to ask you this question. Ask yourself, actually. 
Do I believe that God is good enough to represent? Do I believe that God is good enough to represent? It's not on our terms where we rebrand him and try and make him a more palatable version, but on his terms. In light of all that God has done, do I consider him good enough to devote my life to? And 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And so you, you have been commissioned by Jesus Christ to bring others the terms of God. And these terms are about this, telling them how they can become a citizen of his kingdom and a member of his household. Now somebody said, unbelievers don't read the Bible, but they read us. And so here is our proud privilege, here's our tremendous responsibility, that the honor of Christ and the church kind of are in our hands. By, by every word, by every action, you can make people think more or less of the church and her master. But God believes that you are, you are capable of this. He's given you this privilege, this purpose, that whatever you do, wherever you are, you are his ambassador. And so through the renewal, the power, the wisdom, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, God has equipped you for this work. He's given you the ministry of reconciliation because he believes that you can do it. And so as you input data, as you pick up the phone, as you cook, as you clean, as you work, as you rest, as you help your kids with homework, as you play video games online, as you post on social media, you are doing this as a representative of Jesus Christ. You are a representative of Jesus Christ to your spouse, to your family, to your kids, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to every person that you encounter. And so if you struggle with this idea of being an ambassador and you're going, man, I, I, I'm not doing a great job. If you want to do a better job, you feel that you could do be, a, be doing a better job. My, my point is not this, that you need to try harder. You need to work harder because that, that desire, that's a short-term motivator. Might last for a few days, might last for a few weeks, but then you'll go back to kind of status quo. Here's what it comes down to is we talk about what we love. Again, you, you know people who love their animals or they love their job or they love their vehicle or some hobby they have. We talk about what we love. So Paul is saying Christ's love must be our compulsion. So if we want to be the best ambassador of Christ, we can. We have to fall in love with Christ more and more. And we do this by understanding his great love for us, but also pursuing him in, in in worship, and through his word, and through prayer, through thanksgiving. And when we do this, as we fall more and more in love with him, you can't help but talk about the one you love with others.